You are listening to Genuine Chit Chat. This show is for real. Hello there, guys, and welcome to another episode of Genuine Chit Chat. This week, I'm joined by Ben of the YouTube channel Star Wars Timeline. So guys, this is another two-parter. So part one is out obviously now, that's what you're listening to, and then part two will be out in a week's time. But if you can't wait for that, then go over to patreon.com slash genuinechitschat, and for as little as £1 a month, you get access to the Patreon-exclusive feed, which has this full Genuine Chit Chat episode in there, as well as hours and hours and hours of additional content that you can only get on Patreon. So make sure you check that out, a link is in the description. But getting into the detail of this conversation, I obviously spoke with Ben, Star timeline and we spoke about a wide variety of things in part one we didn't actually talk about star wars barely at all so don't worry if you're not the biggest fan of star wars we speak about ben moving from his home country of russia over to new york obviously the united states and we talk about some of the cultural differences and similarities as well as ben's education in animation Uh, we speak about animation a little bit as well as mythology and joseph campbell was mentioned and then towards the end of this conversation we then talk about june a little bit. Uh, in this one, it's completely spoiler-free. We just give a small amount of our thoughts on it, and then it cuts before we get into the more in-depth discussion, which will be in part two. Now, I will just quickly add here that at the start, you hear Ben's voice. The connection is a little bit off for the first like minute or so of the conversation. It's very, very minor. You can't really notice the difference that much, but just for any of your audiophiles out there, if you do notice it, don't worry. After a minute or so, it goes completely normal and it, the issue does not reoccur, so no worries at all there. But um, make sure you check out Ben's YouTube channel as well as his social media. Links are in the description. Make sure you check out my four appearances on Star Wars Timeline, and uh, yeah, just enjoy the conversation. It is a lot of fun but um i'm gonna be back at the end to give a little bit more information of what's to come and things and as we end the year of 2021 but um yeah hope you guys enjoy this so i present to you ben of star wars timeline welcome to genuine chit chat where we have honest conversations with interesting people and i'm your host mike burton And here we are. So I am joined today uh, with my good friend Ben. And this is probably the first time that I've had a guest on the show that I've been on their show so many more times than they've been on mine. Normally people come on my show like once or twice and then I'll go on their show and things. But I've been on your show four times already. I mean, three of them were like weeks after each other and things. Um, So why don't you tell everyone how it is that we kind of uh, got to know each other because what it is, the kind of content you create. Mm-hmm. First of all, Mike, thank you very much for having me. I feel honored and I feel completely relaxed. Now I don't have to put in any work. I just have to answer questions. That's got to be exciting, right? <laughs> but my name is Ben and I started the Star Wars Timeline channel because I came across people on social media asking questions. Hey, where to start in the books? Where to start reading? So I'm like, okay, let me start answering that. Put my all my creative juices into this channel. I started... Uh, uh, Facebook group, Star Wars Timeline, thinking I will just drop my videos there. Nobody will come to watch them. And they kind of like, a, you know, a, a, a community snowballed out of there. And very lately, I questioned myself, should I jump on Twitter or not? I know what kind <laughs> of, you know, stigma it has. And Star Wars, you know, underscore channel, threw it in there. Star Wars Timeline, just throw all my content in there. And I started getting, receiving this response. I'm like, okay. And then... I don't actually exactly remember how you and I started conversating. I think it was one of the Facebook groups mm. it could have been. I think right? It was, I saw yeah. a comment or two. And I always enjoy 
sharing thoughts and opinions with people, especially those who disagree with me. Like, hey, why mm. do you think this way? Why do you think that way? And and our shared love and passion for Star Wars, that's what it started, you know? Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think it was the Facebook groups and things, but yeah, your mm-hmm. your channel Star Wars Timeline, I love it because you've got the you've got the shorter episode or the shorter videos and things that you just do sort of like mini deep dives on species or planets or characters and um, characters and things, which I do thoroughly enjoy. And then you've also got the longer form ones, which you've been doing more recently with you know speaking mm-hmm. with other individuals and whatnot. Um, but if we like roll it all the way back uh, to sort of your early life, um, you were not born in the United States, which is where you're currently mm-hmm. residing. So we'd like to tell us sort of where you originally were from and why you decided to uh, move to America, in essence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I kind of traveled, right? I was born on the last wave of Soviet Union, right? 1981, mm. I was born in a republic called Moldova, which is now an independent, you know, free government, but it was like part of Soviet Union, and people speak kind of like Russian and uh, uh, Roman in mm. there. Uh, from there, I was like four or five. I moved to Caucasus, south of Russia, between the Black and Caspian Sea, spent most of my teenage years. And then when I was 14, we moved to New York. And basically, that's what I've stayed most of my life. If somebody told me at 14 that I would come abroad and live in a different country and speak in a different language, I would have left. I'm like, come on, man. What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I remember coming to New York, the biggest like sort of phobia and question was, um, will I ever be able to speak like consistent english like string sentences together and formulate thoughts it was the biggest scare even though like we we studied uh, english the queen's british or or what you call the proper english in, in russia you come here nobody studied it nobody's like oh, we're not gonna use it you know so you come here you have to start from the begin- beginning the past present future times the, the verb to be and all that stuff like it was a uh, pretty nightmarish but yeah we moved uh, because the climate was quite uneasy in, in Russia in that time. Post, you know, the fall collapse of Soviet Union 1991, it was like complete chaos, people privatizing sectors and people taking the wealth of, of Russia and just like putting it to offshore accounts, just robbing, you know, the country blind. And uh, the south of Russia was like, there was a lot of uh, uh, crime and my family had a, a business and my grandfather just said, you know what, I can't. I don't want my grandchildren experiencing all of this mess. Let's move. Um, mm. Actually, my great-grand-uncle, uh, who was a Soviet-era popular actor who moved to the United States to New York decades earlier, he actually got to star in one of the films with Robin Williams, mm. Moscow oh, on wow. Hudson. He plays Robin Williams' uh, 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 crazy old man. And he was inviting us over. Many, many years, he said, like, he was my grandfather's brother, actually. He was saying, come over, you know, come to New York. It's such a vibrant city. You will love it here. There's, you know, there's culture. There's Russians here. Come over. So that was sort of the decision. It was, my family was kind of like weighing our options. And then just we one day picked our bags and left. Wow. That's really cool. And you say that, uh, obviously, with learning English and things, that was uh, tasking. Did you, uh, how, how many languages do you speak, is it? Well, how many languages do you speak, basically? <laughs> uh, Russian, English, and I speak a tiny bit of Farsi. Farsi is a Mediterranean language, which a lot of uh, uh, cultures speak, primarily Iranians. This is where my roots are. So I'm, so to speak, a Caucasian Jew or, or mm. Sephardic Jew, or you could say uh, Iranian Jew. That's my roots mm. dating back 3,000 years ago. My parents speak it fluently. We don't have a writing system because the language is actually very, very old. It's older than modern 
Iraqian language, mm. uh, Iranian language, I'm sorry. And uh, uh, so we only have verbal traditions and verbal language. So my parents are fluent in that. I'm like, oh, uh, okay, I can understand a little bit over here and over there. But generally, it's just Russian and English. And coming over, well, coming over, I'm not over there. I'm not based in the US. But yeah. um, going over there at that age to learn English, I mean, your English is, you know, fluent at the moment. Well, so was that you meant it was kind of difficult was it difficult for you to acclimatize because 14 is quite late like if you were like six years old or something and you came over yeah. by the time you were 14 it wouldn't have almost it wouldn't mm-hmm. be a second thought so how did how was that sort of the early years of you growing up in the u.s if you don't mind me asking yeah sure you know the contrast is actually i have a younger brother joe right he has his own youtube channel like heavy metal and all that stuff so we're six years apart mm. he was eight i was 14 and frankly the the Contrast between the two wasn't that different because when you're 14, you pick up information a lot quicker than, let's say, when you were like 20 or 30, mm-hmm. right? So it was still, I mean, first half a year for myself and for him, it was like you are in, in this cultural bubble that you're in. You don't speak the language. You don't understand the culture. You have, we had, we couldn't imagine what New York would be like because obviously, you know, all the kids in the world at that time grew with Hollywood cinema. Mm-hmm. Right, from Breakfast Club to Indiana Jones to Back to the Future, we saw a romanticized, this magical version of the United States through cinema. And that's all the access we had. Unless, of course, it was like a documentary on TV. But even that was just a small glimpse. I mean, when you come here, it's not just the language barrier, it's culture shock. And I remember for a very long time, I used to sit, um, I, I went to this huge school called John F. Kennedy High School in the Bronx. It's primarily, you know, the kids were demographically Hispanic kids, Latino kids, black kids, and only six students of like 6,000 students school. And you would sit silently in the classroom and just not say a word because it just, it was just like that kind of barrier. Like, I don't know what to say. I don't want to sound stupid and inaccurate. I remember one day some Spanish kid turned over and he looked at me over the shoulders like this big guy. He said, Hey, Ben, are you okay? Is someone bothering me? Like, you're so quiet all the time. What is your problem? Sorry, guys. This is New York saying hello. Michael and I, we constantly hear this during my podcast, my recordings. It's sort of kind of like a familiarity, but sorry, we now introduce the sound to your podcast as well. <laughs> the tradition <laughs> continues. <laughs> right. Tradition continues. And this and this uh, uh, boy, you know, he asked me like, hey, Ben, what is the problem? You okay? And I told him, English is my problem. It was mm. so scared to speak up. He's like, oh, don't worry, man, you'll get this. So, you know, and after slowly, obviously, half a year later, when you jump from the ESL classes into proper English and you start learning math and you start learning history, it snowballs, it picks up. I used a lot of diversions outside of school to pick up on English. Like I would translate my favorite heavy metal lyrics, which mm-hmm. I grew up with in Russia, like Metallica. Like, yeah, you know, you love the music, but you don't know the lyrics. I'm like, okay, now I live in this country. It's a perfect opportunity to learn. Mm-hmm. And comic books was also my huge window into understanding language because they're bubbles. That's all you have to pick up. It's not intimidating at all. You sit side by side with a dictionary, right? This is before Google Translate. Before online dictionaries, you would just sit with a physical translator in your comic book and you're like, okay, let's figure this thing out. Wow. That's mm-hmm. amazing. I mean, that's a good amount of dedication for your sort of uh, the roots of being, you know, a nerd in all the best ways. You know, obviously, I am. Yeah. I mean, in the background, there's even a Lego Millennium Falcon. So, you know, that's, that's how we got connected. But with, yeah. um, so if we move on a small amount because there's a few bits of uh, information that I know about you that um, our listeners definitely won't know. But even people who listen to your channel, I'm not sure if you've told them about it on your channel. But 
you're sort of actually i think you might have done a podcast or two about your past mm-hmm. of uh, being an animator in essence and i want to ask mm-hmm. sort of being in that field how you got into that and did that come from your love of sort of anime and that sort of thing or was it kind mm-hmm. of the reverse uh First of all, I would like to make a small confession. I think I've made it in one of my podcasts. I'm now publicly announcing it here. I kind of cheat. I say that I'm an animator because I have a degree in animation, right? I, mean, I studied still... four years. I have a degree. I insist. I have a degree in animation. I never pursued it as a career because by my final year graduating from School of Visual Arts here in New York, I realized it. there has to be a, a, a balance between workload and you enjoying it. Mm-hmm. If workload outweighs your love or passion for something and your heart is not in it, you can't call yourself that. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So when I studied, and, and I'll tell you, I'll speak up to how I got into animation, but in my final year, I took courses like uh, the art history, and I took classes in mythology, and I took classes in 3D Maya and modeling. And being such a huge video gamer, I knew that I kind of picked the wrong direction. I should have been a 3D model or a 3D animator. That would have been my thing. I would totally dedicate myself to that, but alas, it was too late. But how I got into it is, once again, I told you that most of the kids grew up with Hollywood cinema and obviously Disney. Mm. And in Russia, you know, mid-80s, early 90s was already a lot more lax. And and the government allowed influx of Western cinema. They was like, okay, let the kids watch it. Even though it wasn't entirely legal, you would have some films which came out in theaters and you would see the posters and go see them. But primarily, we got everything through pirated VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. That's how I saw Star Wars. That's how I saw Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, Terminator, Robocop, all these movies, right? And uh, uh, gathering my thoughts, your question was... <laughs> um, it was about why you pursued the career of animation right or, because or i pursued degree right yeah. we were on disney sorry yeah. and obviously a huge part of the childhood was disney partially it was their animated series that were on television like you know ducktales and you know, chip and dale and all that mm-hmm. stuff but also the animated films pocahontas you know beauty and the beast the lion king you know aladdin when i saw that i'm like and i used to draw them in my little sketchbook I always dreamed that I would work for Disney one day. That would be this great. And we also had a very immense tradition and library of Russian animation, which is known throughout the world as some of the most amazing animation ever produced. And I said, I want to work for Disney someday. So we came here. And the way that I got specifically in that school and got a degree in animation, somebody at my public college, the Lehman College that I went to, my art teacher said, well, Ben, there is this school of school of visual arts if you like animation you should go there and i went there i had an interview and the lady not maliciously so but she sort of laughed at me she saw my little scribble she said ben uh you realize this is one of the best schools on the eastern coast of the u.s like art schools only special gifted kids get here like what you brought here it's just scribbles you don't even have a portfolio i got up i was so fumed I went to the interview by myself. I was 18 years old. My parents were not present. You know, you're like, feel a little bit vulnerable and insecure. And I, I stood up. I got so fumed. I looked at her. I said, lady, expect me in the school next year. <laughs> <laughs> so I left. I picked up my scribbles. And the same professor who uh, suggested the school to me, she helped me build my portfolio, for which I'm forever grateful. So I came next back, you know, came back next year, all my portfolio done, and I went to the school based on the principle that I will do the impossible. You told me no, but I will get in the school and I will study animation. Amazing. So that was that was the uh, and um, impulse. 
the 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 encouragement, the inspiration aside from Disney and Russian film was also anime, which we had very little uh, access to in a small town that I grew up in. But the two biggest things were Giver, and it was one early Miyazaki film, which I forget what it was. It was an early Miyazaki film. It's fully animated, and we did understand what. That it was Japanese, it was a specifically a type of animation, but I didn't realize it was this anime genre. You know, I just knew it was a Japanese cartoon. Mm. And Evan, just what kind of uh, since then, what other anime do you like? Because I, I know you like a few. So once I came here, I started working in a comic book shop right across my street called Bulletproof Comics for many years. And the way that I got into working there, there was this Korean gentleman who owned it, uh, Stephen Stephen Chow, who. Uh, had a bunch of comic books and video games that he sold there. And I came through one time and he had a collection of anime. And DVD was coming in hot in the United States because PlayStation 2 was the cheapest DVD player that you could play. So it's kind of like a a gaming culture clashing with anime culture together in one because all the video game kids in New York, at least the kids that I talked to who played PlayStation 2 video games, they wanted to jump on this new beautiful, crispy, high-definition way of looking at anime, right? Mm -hmm. And I started talking to this owner, and he was like, Ben, you have to see the original Vampire Hunter D. Boom. I love that. I've got that DVD. Right? You have to see Akira. Boom. You have to see uh, uh, the original Ghost in the Shell. Boom. Mm -hmm. It's like he started barraging me with all this stuff. Escaflone, uh, uh, Outlaw Star, uh, Cowboy Bebop, you know, it's like, of course, Naruto was already making its headway into the States. It was only available on VHS. Naruto. So many animes of that late 80s, early 90s and mid 90s is where it thrived. And then by 2000s, I kind of like got out of it because it got populated by this, you know, lolicon, waifu, kind of like big breasted women kind of thing. I was like, ah. Not for me. <laughs> Berserk, yeah. well, obviously, was a huge one. Yeah, yeah, because I've I've seen a, f- a fair amount of anime, but not like a huge, huge amount. Maybe mm-hmm. more than the average person, but definitely not as much as some of my my yeah. friends and things. You know, I used to watch Dragon Ball a lot, so I've seen all of Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z, Dragon Ball GT, mm-hmm. Dragon Ball Kai, lots of the films, and then I've seen bits of Super, uh, and then I saw like a lot of Pokemon, Digimon, mm-hmm. Vampire Hunter D, Fist of the North Star. Um, and that sort of thing. And then I've seen like some, uh, Studio Ghibli sort of films, Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, yeah, a couple yeah. of those. Those so are I, the heavy ones, the big ones. Yeah. 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 And there's a few other, you, you know, I've seen Ghost in the Shell. I've got a care on um, Blu-ray. I haven't watched it yet though. It was um, a mm-hmm. gift from a friend of mine this year. So I, I do need to get in on that as well. But yeah, I mean, animation is so diverse. And I, I whenever people say, oh, I just don't like cartoons, I'm just like, but I know there are probably probably people who listen to this podcast who may have that opinion, and that's fine. But I'm yeah. always just a bit like, but that's such a broad brush of like the the variation you can have from something like, you know, SpongeBob to South Park to Rick and yeah. Morty to then you know Star Wars, Clone Wars, which is animated. It's just mm-hmm. you know 3D models as opposed to 2D animated and things. And it's just like those kind of the variety there in itself is completely yeah. different. Um, so out of interest with those, do you have like a favorite type of animation style? Is it the Russian sort of, uh, ones that you saw in your youth or is there another one that's quite a contender? No, you know, because I was equally exposed to everything. I don't play favorites. I never have it, whether mm. it's American animation or you look at something like Soviet era, sixties and seventies animation. A lot of uh, Russian filmmakers did adaptations of world classics. Mm. Whether it's like Hans Christian Andersen or they collaborate a lot with Japanese filmmakers. Akira Kurosawa came over and he directed Russian films as well. 
Um, so as far as animation is concerned, when you're, you know, in picture a, a box of candy. Hmm. It's all candy. It doesn't matter. Like you pick your own chocolate and then you get, you know, this one and that one. It doesn't matter. And, you know, between anime or whether it's a claymation or whether it's something experimental and intended for adults. Like, for example, there's one famous Russian animated film, which is done entirely with a, a box of uh, matches. What? That's all it is. It's a commentary on war. Mm. And it's animated. He t- he takes each individual match piece and he parades them as soldiers and he tells a story with them. He brings character to a piece of matches. It's a very highly experimental film. But when you watch something like that and you move to something like claymation, where each claymation piece is actually woven out of mm. fabric, right? And mm. then you move to something that's made out of clay or wire. Like it's, it's, you can't go back from that. I guess that's one thing that, you know, generally when you talk to younger people, especially like the millennial generation, they hear Soviet Union or communism or Soviet regime. They think that they were with these narrow minded tunnel vision kind of kids. We had a very, very broad education in terms of school and in terms of cultural influences from around the world. And art and animation was a huge part of it. We saw a lot of Western animation. Who, who didn't grow up with Tom and Jerry? <laughs> That's culture. Those, those mm. animated films won Oscars, right? The one where Miles goes to New York, I think. Remember the one with the Jerry? It's an episode featuring only him. And he goes to the big city and you experience New York through him. That's culture. That's art. And when you experience all of it, like I never distinguished, I never knew the difference. It, it was all a world of animation to me. Mm. Yeah, it's a very good way of putting it. Like I feel similarly with animation. Like, you know, for example, Spirited Away has some of my favorite hand-drawn animation, if not my favorite ever. Mm-hmm. But then I love the some of the overtop elements that come with like Dragon Ball Z and things where they're like, you know, uh, powering up and things and everything around them is cracking and you've got all these sort of layers of it and things. And then you get sort of, you know stop motion things like one of my favorite films is isle of dogs and another one is Coraline, and both of those are stop motion by different directors Mm -hmm. but like those top contenders for me of maybe that genre don't compare to each other it's kind of like you know what's your favorite do you like your favorite comedy film more than your favorite sci-fi film and it's like well they're two quite different mediums they're quite different feels to them and with animation there's just such a wide scope and variety and as you say it's so connected with the culture is that most nations across the world have their own sort of variant. I mean, even, you know, obviously Americans have got their standard sort of cartoon, but even they've got uh, elements yeah. which are more similar to anime, such as like Avatar. Yeah. But even, you know, within one culture, you have mm. experimental artists who do different things. And as far as aesthetic goes, the only thing when I became older and more critical, obviously, and, you know, when you have that, that film education and, and, and animation, you're taught by top professors in the country, you kind of like start shaping and focusing on things and sh- sharpening your your taste and, and things that you're looking for. The only thing that I started question is animation that looks so realistic that it could have been done in film. Because mm. if it can be done in film, to me, it's no longer animation. It has no purpose or reason to be in animation. For example, uh, there was a wonderful, wonderful Japanese film that came out, I want to say early 2000s, called Jinro, The Wolf Brigade. Right. It's a fantastic dystopian futuristic film where the the what if the Nazi Germany had won and Japan had adapted that kind of rulership mm. of neo-nationalism and uh, um, this young man who works for this military uh, militia uh, military government faction that enforces law upon citizens. It's a beautiful film. It has fantastic script. It has a fantastic story, but it's so realistic looking that it's. 
none of the spark, none of the imaginative visual charm that makes animation what it is, is present in it. It's mm-hmm. almost done as a feature film that didn't have the budget to be live action. And right. that's why they decided to go with animation. And from that perspective, you can respect it. But as an animator, I felt that it didn't exploit the medium to its full extent. And if you were to ask me, Ben, what do you generally love? Do you have a particular style or thing that you look for? I love my animation that is removed from reality. Mm. I love my animation that it could have some grounded things in it. Like, for example, Star Wars Visions, which I'm sure we'll talk about, the first episode, The Duel, where Mm. the duel itself is very grounded. But when you look at the characters and then when they move outside of combat and the way that they look and how things animate in the background, it's very stylized. And that's what Mm. I enjoy in general. Mm, that's a good point i love that episode of of the jewel uh, as well and mm. um, we'll get on to star wars shortly because once we get off on that i don't think we'll get off that subject at all because i know what we're both like um so if we speak about something that's uh sort of i've got one more thing before um i want to i want to talk about dune in a minute but i want to yeah. ask you one more thing before that which is uh, you mentioned slightly earlier with your uh college um studies and things and that was mythology because i know that you use in a lot of your youtube videos and things and when you speak about uh, star wars and things one of the things i really enjoy hearing about is when you talk about its comparison to mythology and sort of the sort of not not necessarily tropes but retelling of ideas and stories and journeys that have appeared previously in mythology like the fallen hero but then also the journey and things so what Mm -hmm. got you how what made you go into that path because so many people watch movies and tv series and films and don't go into mythology right what kind of got that um, intrigue fired up in you Mm -hmm. i suspect suspect that a lot of modern audience uh, who are glued to hollywood and don't look outside of hollywood world cinema i don't want to say nobody is ignorant everybody comes with a very specific worldview and i suspect that a lot of that audience subconsciously still understands those elements in the storytelling But how I came into it is, historically, Russia and Greece have been two nations that were interconnected. Obviously, Mm -hmm. Russian language has the Cyrillic uh, letters and a lot of words from Greek language. And because of all of the, the, both countries predominantly share the same religious practices, we always were like this tight. And the kids, my generation, I, I won't speak up for my father's generation or earlier, but my generation, kids in the 80s, we grew up reading Greek mythology books, watching adaptations of Russian animated films, which are done about the Greek heroic figures like Hercules, Jason and the Argonauts, the different, you know, uh, uh, pieces dedicated to certain gods and nymphs and so forth. So it was in my vocabulary since childhood. Here's Russian folklore, right? The Slavic folklore. And here is the uh, Greek culture and Greek myth. I always grew with one, uh, each one side by side. So, and watching all of these uh, um, myth- mythology films or fantasy films or folk tales, as, as we call them in Russia, which beautiful pieces uh, made in the 60s and 70s, full feature live action films that we grew up with, which are also known around the world. They're translated in different languages. When you watch that as a kid and you absorb it and it's part of your language, and then you go into Star Wars and you start learning history of it, right? And and DNA and what what factors in his John Williams over here and Ralph McQuarrie over there. Oh, who is Joseph Campbell? And mm-hmm. from that point forward, once I discovered obviously Joseph Campbell and his theory of monomyth, it wasn't a grand discovery for me. It was tying everything into one package for me. 
Mm. As a kid who was always interested in folklore from Japanese culture, we had, again, Russian animated films made about the Jap- Japanese folklore, Chinese folklore, or, or West European or Scandinavian tales like the, the Frost Witch, or how do you call her? The, the Ice Queen or Frost mm. Witch, something yeah. like that, right? Yeah, yeah, Scandinavian yeah. tales. That too. And, and to me, discovering, uh, uh, Joseph Campbell was, w- made me take a deeper dive into it. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I knew this stuff kind of on the periphery, on the surface. Now I want to learn more. And when you elaborate on with uh, Joseph Campbell, what his primary theory was, what you were just speaking about for our audience. Right. So there's this wonderful documentary that you can go and see based on his conversations, right? I think they were filmed at Lucas Ranch during his last years before he passed away because George Lucas considered him his mentor and his friend. Right. And, and Joseph Campbell makes a lot of commentaries on themes in Star Wars after the movies were released. But basically his concept of monomyth is the idea that all cultures, all the primitive cultures of the world share a common thread. They all have a mythology, folklore as a part of their religious spiritual traditions. And all of those myths are based on the idea of symbology, which comes from the subconscious, right? Young and Nearship, obviously, he refers to those as well. Mm-hmm. But generally, he's saying he he's a. I don't think there's a more definitive scholar on world mythology than Joseph Campbell. Mm-hmm. He's he's got renowned for his work during the sixties, and to this day, you go to any bookstore, and his book of a hero with a thousand faces will be there, sitting on the shelf. Mm-hmm. It's it's the definitive work on world mythology, and you know it's such a hopeful and encouraging thought that we're all united something that comes from our psyche from somewhere buried deep underneath why the ancients were worshiping the sun at one point why later on we had christ-like figures right the resurrection of the holy man who will basically bring enlightenment to the world with the idea which started actually way way before christianity right Mm -hmm. one of the first resurrected figures is uh uh, in uh, egyptian mythology therefore clore and the deeper you go, the more you start unraveling the thread of, of what connects the world and what makes even the modern mind tick. Because we're surrounded by technology. We're surrounded by all these things. People saying, well, you know, I want to be pragmatic. I want to believe in things that I see and hear. But there's also this deeply layered component to us as humans. And the more you study myth, the more you study Star Wars, the more you understand heroic motifs, the more I feel you go back into yourself and you learn about yourself. Hmm. Yeah, it is an intriguing. It, it makes you introspective in certain ways. And once uh-huh. you kind of see the patterns in a lot of humans, then it becomes easier in certain ways to recognize patterns within yourself as well. You yeah. know, when you, it's one of those things I've spoken about on this podcast many a times, but my, my dad passed away when I was 19. And I've said that it's the worst thing that's ever, ever happened to me, but it's the best right. thing that ever happened to my character. Because something like that made me have to sort of, reevaluate what things about him I liked, what I didn't, and then think about well, why was he the way he was in this way? Why was he the way he was in that way? And I was like, oh, because of this. And then I was like, well, I've got that trait as well. So mm-hmm. what about me caused that? And what can I do going forward to try, try and change that? And with mythology and especially Star Wars, and they're still saying this today with like so many Star Wars content creators say this, where it's in short kind of trying to teach lessons in a way. The, the stories yeah. and the mythology, they're, they're teaching you 
lessons about life by using parallels but using much more extreme examples you know with the empire is obviously very much about yeah. sort of fascism and things like that and it's you know the dark side of the force and you get these amazing powers and you get to seemingly just do whatever you want to do but it comes about a price and there's you know doing the right thing isn't always easy it's often actually yeah. harder to do and you'll get beaten down but if you persevere and you have your heart in the right place you can get through it and it's things like you get children you know the marvel movies do it um as well in a lot of ways and it's like you get these films where children or adults or anyone alike you consume this content and it's satisfying to a deeper level in, in a lot of ways and you know the stories themselves they they're so important to the the world that you kind of get immersed in as well yeah. I just want to add that also, you know, to bring to what you're saying is that mm-hmm. there's a clear social function that a myth fulfills, right? Mm-hmm. It teaches the younger members of the society how to, what they're expected, what is expected of them, mm-hmm. how to behave and become the adults in this new world. But also it feels like in our modern world, it's substituting the biological need in us to worship. Mm. to realize that there's something greater than ourselves. And, and there is a religious aspect. There's a spiritual component to myth where a lot of people who claim like, look, I'm not religious. I'm not spiritual. I don't believe in God. That's all fine. I'm not mm-hmm. negating, neglecting that. But we have replaced our gods and heroes with something else. The most obvious, obviously, is Marvel and DC. It's mm-hmm. a carbon copy of Scandinavian or Greek or Egyptian mythology transplanted onto modern times, Right. Superman is basically Hercules, yeah. and all the myth, myths are uh, intertwined. And I think it's important to recognize that that each myth has both. It can be a social function, like and religious function. Like like Hercules would have his own temple and and worshippers and sect in one pile in the, a part of Greece, right? But he's also a hero of a tale that you relate to a child and you say, if you want to grow big and strong like Hercules and be brave and walk through life with confidence. You need to emulate this model. Here's this hero. If you don't want to be like Jason and the Argonauts, I always like to bring this example where in the beginning of his journey, he's this heroic young man who takes his rightful place and earns back his throne. But later on, he becomes a villain of his own kingdom. And also for a young man to see that transformation, that heroes never stay the same, right? I'm pretty sure we'll touch upon Luke in The Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. Another excellent example. It's it's also such a vital aspect of realizing that heroes change and we must observe our growth through life and make sure we don't fall into the same uh, pitfalls. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's one of those things as well. You know, if you just tell a kid, you know, don't be bad, they'll just be like, what? Yeah. What, what? You know, don't be bad or bad things will happen to you. Like, what? Mm-hmm. But then if you show them a thing where like with – you know, using Star Wars as an example, it's like, look, if you do something really nice and you're really good of heart, you could have magic powers. You're not literally telling a child that and lying to them, but it's that kind of belief where, in a sense, one of the reasons I like characters like uh, Leia, especially when she's older, um, is that sort of more grounded view on things. And like, you can't go around doing all these crazy things all the time and everything working out. You have to think about things. You have to, you know, it's what she says to Poe in Last Jedi. You know, you can't just jump yeah. in something and blow something up. You know, you can't just go and be brash and do these silly things. You have to mm-hmm. stop and think and reevaluate things. And not everything's how it seems. And learning to think in that way doesn't necessarily come from someone telling you to think in that way. It comes from children. Obviously, the way they learn things up till well, people are always learning, but especially children, they're absorbing all their environment and how to 
be a person and when they yeah. witness you know family and friends nearby doing stuff that's a huge factor but also kids always emulate stuff you watch you know the impressions of they want to dress up like them they want to be this character and if in your childhood you want to be certain characters and things the the elements of them that you like you can kind of somewhat want to have elements like that in yourself like i was always like that with obi-wan um i was always from the original trilogy and the sequel original trilogy and the uh, prequels he was always my favorite character ever and i was mm-hmm. always like no matter what happened to him he's had like one of the worst lives in star wars and he keeps just trying to do the the, the best thing and yeah. it's things like that which i wanted to try and be you know people should be more like obi-wan for the most part that's not a bad slogan there are a couple of minor issues he had with crazy anakin but and it's a good thing because you want to look civilization has certain expectations and in order for it to fully function you want to teach kids these practices which help them be functional and constructive not destructive right if if Mm -hmm. you have no laws and 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 you know a young man grows up and he has no value to other people's lives and go take away stuff from you at a gunpoint or worse kill somebody that works against uh, civilization, not for it. You know, and sometimes when people say, well, you know, don't brush, brainwash the kids, don't teach them this and that, you know, somebody has a political agenda. Well, yes, there's always agenda. And the agenda of civilization is to survive and flourish and not at the expense of its citizens, right? I should be able to thrive next to you and we all should be happy and not at each other's throats, right? So you must uh, teach a certain discipline to a kid. And that's what the function of mythology was. Mm-hmm. I agree completely. And yeah. so moving on from that, let's talk about Dune a bit because I haven't really spoken to anyone about Dune that much after I watched it uh, a short while ago. And I will say for guys here um, listening, there will be some minor spoilers um, or mm. pro- maybe even major spoilers, I don't know, um, with, but to warn people. So you may want to uh, skip ahead if you don't want to have anything about Dune uh, spoiled for you. Um, but, you know, we'll try not to horrendously spoil everything immediately from the get go. But you know, it's it's got a lot of connections to Star Wars in obviously that in the sense that it inspired Star Wars. The book, the original content, it inspired George Lucas. You can clearly see a lot of the uh, elements of that. And I really, I thought the film was really enjoyable. Like out of interest, I assume you you've seen the older film, the one from was it the eighties? Yes, I, grew, I actually grew up with the older one on, as I mentioned before, on a pirated tape with like cheap rushing single actor dubbing i saw i grew up with the original one <laughs> so what i've heard that it's a very different film it's quite cheesy yeah. and it's a lot of people really don't like it out of interest how does it compare to the modern dune which obviously i've seen but i haven't seen the the old one i don't think they compare at all i think mm. they are completely different movies coming from a completely different creative center mm-hmm. um as an adult, I could like analyze and look at the older one, which uh, granted, I haven't seen it in years. Last time I saw it, maybe a couple of years back on the Blu-ray. Mm. But um, it feels like to a modern viewer, it feels like a film that wanted to honor the book. And it's obviously created by people who worship the source material. But it feels like it falls into the into this kind of like industrial Hollywood machine of trying to make this mega blockbuster, uh, having insane amount of money thrown at it but at the same time not executing exactly its vision because of the interference from executive board Mm, you know people are are under some sort of certain modern spell like star wars fans like modern filmmaking is all made in a committee that's how all hollywood film has been made throughout through the 30s through the golden age of cinema yes before you had a vision behind one artist one director and sometimes they would fight their battles and win 
and and get the films done their way. But other times, investors would say like, uh-uh, we want a popular, we want this actress to be cast who's popular, let's say in 30s and 40s, because she's going to sell more tickets. It's always this interplay between creativity and 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 the the practical aspect of it. And it feels like when you watch the original film, it's brought down by by all of that inner inner struggles of the making of the film. So in the end, it works as this visually appealing, beautiful, masterfully done special effects at the time, which I believe still hold up to this day. Hmm. I mean, when you look at the Arrakis, when you look at the worms come out, like the blue eyes, the suits, the everything, when you look at it, visually, it's there. It's on point. It has such a wonderful cast of actors that regardless of what you think about the execution of the film, you got to pay tribute to how these actors work in the film. I thought they all did a wonderful job. Whereas the new film is... I can't also call an 100% flawless book transplanted onto film screen. Mm. What Denis Villeneuve was very consciously aware of, and he decided to strategically approach and say, like, look, hold on a second. The book has this very spiritual, nuanced way, the way that it relates characters, that it relates scenery and psychology and spirituality, that... It is impossible to capture on screen. And he said, so what do I do? Do I completely butcher the job and do my own version of it? Or do I proceed and create the best version of kind of like a a cinematic commercial for the book? Hmm. If that makes any sense. He said, let me throw all the imagery on screen uh, just opposed with with." amazing cinematic score and actor play that will invite the audience to go and say like, Hey, I need to go to read the book now. Right. So basically he's, he's like having this bait in front of you and he's waving it very expertly. So, and saying, look, this is the best that this cinematic craft can perform, can do. And the rest is in the book. And I think on that score, I can't praise the movie more enough. He, he, he nailed it. I don't think anybody could have done a better job. Hmm. And do you, Personally, do you think the book is is it I know you don't like saying if one is better or not than the other, but like is the book in some ways it's got a lot more information which is good, but can it be a bit overwhelming and too much and the pacing's off? Like how how do the two film how's the film and the book sort of compare, the the, mm-hmm. the newest film mm-hmm. and the book? Because I've I've not read the book to clarify. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, we you and I we spoke about it and I, and I was actually super excited to talk about this topic with you. So And that's the end of part one. Thanks as always for tuning in, guys. Part two will be out next week as usual. But as I said in the intro, consider checking out my Patreon at patreon.com slash genuine chits chat. And you'll get access to part two of this conversation immediately, as well as hours of additional content of Afterthoughts, which is what me and Megan do. We do it at least once a week. We do movie reviews, TV reviews. Uh, I've done a couple of solo ones on there. So I've done a Dark Disciple book review. I've done a couple of comic reviews. And also as Christmas comes near there's going to be some extra special bonus content on there as well including like a road trip me and megan have gone on and a few other bits and pieces around there so if you want to support the show and want loads of additional content and want to hear part two of conversations like this a week before anyone else does please consider checking out my patreon page
But anyway, guys, as I said, so part two of my conversation with Ben, we delve into Dune a little bit more. I would generally recommend people watch Dune because it is ace, but fear not because the conversation that we do have on Dune, we don't do any major spoilers. There's like a minor sort of light spoiler-ish on kind of thematically or more so one of a character's journeys a little bit. But if you're okay with hearing that, we don't talk about in depth of the film itself or anything like that. And I've not read any of the books or anything like that either. So I didn't want anything spoiled for me, but um, I just want to clarify if you want to go and watch Dune with absolutely no knowledge of it at all, then maybe wait to listen to part two. But after we talk about Dune for a little bit, we then talk about Star Wars and we speak about Star Wars for about an hour or so. And uh, next week's episode is a lot longer as well. It's about an hour and a half long, whereas this episode I think was like 30 to 40 minutes long uh, because I want part two to be like its own self-contained thing, just primarily talking about Dune and Star Wars. Also, make sure you check out my appearances on Star Wars Timeline. I've got links to those in the description, all four appearances, one of which was I spoke with Ben about the three Star Wars trilogies in sort of a variety of ways, comparing them as such. And then the other three episodes were talking about each of the sequel trilogy movies, Force Awakens, Last Jedi, and The Rise of Skywalker. So make sure you, if you're a Star Wars fan, check out Star Wars Timeline on YouTube. It is a really, really good channel. And I watch plenty of the videos on there regularly, and it is a lot of fun. Plus, you can follow him on Twitter, or you can join the Star Wars Timeline Facebook group, where we all talk about Star Warsy stuff quite a lot. But aside from that, guys, what have we got coming up after that? Well, I've got a conversation planned with Goff of Beer Nuts Productions in January. I've also got another conversation with Chris Brayton of the I Like to Like Things podcast, also planned in January. I've got Brad Sugars, who should be coming in either January or February as well, uh, as well as a few other returning guests I've got planned for 2022 and a lot of new guests as well. So it's a really, really exciting time to be a subscriber slash follower of Genuine Chit Chat. And it's an even more exciting time to be a supporter on Patreon because of Obviously, as I said, over there, there's loads of additional content. But if you don't want to support the show financially, which I completely understand, especially at this time of year, you can do it in a variety of other ways. You can review on Good Pods or Apple Podcasts or Podcast Addict. And actually, Spotify now have released where you can rate things. You don't need to write a review. You just give something out of five-star rating. So if you listen to the show on Spotify, please consider giving it a five-star rating. It would mean the absolute world to me. But in addition to that, please check out my YouTube channel where I upload video versions of these conversations. So when part two of this conversation does drop, I will have uploaded the full conversation onto YouTube with full video with Ben. Uh, in addition to that, there's also other conversations I've had that have got video. I also upload all my Star Wars comics and canon episodes on there. There's a few other bonus things on there too, but I want the YouTube channel link to be changed from like loads of gobbledygook to slash genuine chit chat, and I can't do that until I get 100 subscribers. So please consider subscribing. I know all of you guys listen on audio and barely anyone listens on YouTube, but if you do have a YouTube channel, it would really mean the world to me if you could go and do that. But if you don't want to do that and you don't want to rate and review, and you don't want to become a financial supporter, then please share on social media with your friends, talk to people about it, and get more people onto genuine chit chat as well, because yeah, it would just mean the absolute world to me. But yeah, aside from that, guys, I hope you enjoy next week's episode when it comes out. But if I don't speak to you before then, I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. However you celebrate this time of year, I hope it all goes well for you. I hope the end of 2021 brings you everything that it wants and that 2022 is a good year for all of us. And um, yeah, I'll be potentially releasing a little special thing on this feed around Christmassy time. I haven't fully decided yet, uh, but I will definitely be releasing lots of content on Patreon. So that is a great way to get additional content over the Christmas period that isn't going to be 
just Christmassy stuff either. So if you're getting a bit sick of Christmassy stuff, especially after Christmas, fear not. There is not going to be loads of Christmas stuff on there. It's going to be a variety of things. But um, yeah, thank you as always for listening, guys. It means the absolute world to me. I appreciate each and every one of you listening. I hope you have a good end to 2021. I hope to speak to you guys next week as well. Or if you're going to go over to Patreon, I hope to speak to you over there too. And um, yeah, if I don't speak to you before, have a great end of the year. I'll talk to you in 2022. And um, I just send you guys all love and hugs. You have just experienced host, creator, everything else of genuine chit-chat, and also the host and creator of Star Wars Comics and Canon, found on the Comics in Motion podcast, Mike Burton.